So take a look. All over the world, there are empty plates at the table and countless empty seats. In the famine, in the flood, in the aftermath. A full table is a fantasy. When you are eating nothing, going nowhere, when every road is a dead end and every cupboard is bare, a full plate is a fable. Then suddenly, love arrives. Faith gets to work and hope rolls up its sleeves. When hope sets the table, seeds become sprouts, become gardens, become fields. Future sinks its roots into the good earth. When hope sets the table, girls grow into women with the power to chase their dreams, define their destinies, and weave their love into communities too strong to unravel. When hope sets the table, bright eyes shine with confidence that comes from a full belly and a sharp mind sparkling with grand dreams and electrifying visions. Convoy of Hope has worked tirelessly to build that table, and millions have taken a seat. Now we ask you to join us, to put your love to work, put your faith on the line, share the hope that's in your heart. So please, pull up a chair, let us break bread together, and let hope set the table for millions more. Well, good morning. My name is Heath. It's a privilege to be with you. Pastor, thanks for the opportunity. And um, before we jump into the Word of God, I just want to thank Jesus publicly just for mercy and grace. So I met Jesus when I was 17, and I'm the first Christian in my ancestry. And uh, my goal is to leave a legacy in our family for generations to come. And so mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. And God, thank you for mercy and grace. And today I want to talk to you about Jesus. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, God said to Abraham, for I have known him. God says, I have known Abraham. Why? In order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So who is Abraham? Well, Abraham was not a Christian. Technically, Abraham was not Jewish. Abraham was a pagan Iraqi man steeped in astrology, and one day he encounters Yahweh. Abram is not looking for God. God looks for him, and Yahweh encounters Abraham and makes a covenant with him, a covenant that takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden before the fall. God didn't choose Abraham to start a religion. He chooses Abraham to reintroduce humanity to God's heart for us. 
And in Genesis 18, the verses I just read, Abraham's instructions are very clear and very simple. I want you to teach your children to keep my way. Well, oh God, mighty one, what is your way and how do we do that? I'm glad you asked. To do righteousness and justice. Righteousness is less about making pure, right decisions. The Hebrew context for righteousness is to literally restore things through radical generosity. We are made righteous through Christ because the most radically generous act that has ever occurred in the history of the world is the innocent Lamb of God dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. That is by far the most righteous thing that has ever happened. The Bible's clear. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. But when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. It's not just that Jesus never sinned, which is true. He lived a sinless life. It is more than that, however. It is the generosity of the Father to, um, to give his Son for the sins of the world. We are made righteous because of God's radical generosity through the cross. And that word justice is interesting. The biblical concept of justice is less about are you innocent or are you guilty. Justice is more about honor versus shame. God defends the cause of people who are treated unjustly, children who go to bed at night hungry and wake up in the morning hungry, women who are discriminated against simply because of their gender, people who suffer under the unbearable weight of poverty and inequality. God restores justice, not just by prosecuting, quote unquote, those who did something wrong, but by taking those who experience shame and publicly restoring them to a place of honor. Righteousness and justice, it is all about us as followers of Jesus living lives of radical generosity so that we can restore other people to a place of honor. And God says to Abraham, the strategy is clear. Teach your children to keep my way, to do righteousness and justice. If we preach a gospel Apart from righteousness and justice, we preach a gospel that Jesus never preached. Jesus did not come to the earth to convert people. He came to the earth to literally bring the kingdom of God here and now. Are you with me? If we preach a gospel apart from justice and compassion, we preach a gospel Jesus never preached. If all we do is focus on justice and compassion apart from righteousness, we simply give people a better brand of eternal misery. It is not either or, it is both and. I remember recently, once again, when I experienced the power of God's people living lives of righteousness and justice. It literally prepares a table in the presence of an enemy called poverty. And it restores hope. I was standing on the streets of one of the most desolate, impoverished places on the planet. Because of my role with Convoy of Hope, I often travel to some of the most arid places. And I gaze into the eyes of war-shocked refugees. And I hold in my arms children who are malnourished and starving. And I listen to women 
who experience significant pain just because people do not believe they have value. Wrap my arms around men who have leprosy, who are missing body parts, and their skin is covered with gray scales, and they release a decrepit odor, and nobody wants to talk to them, let alone touch them. And when you reap your arms, reach your arms around someone who has leprosy and you just hug them, it is a sign and a wonder. It's amazing how starving the world is just for pure, unconditional love. I'm standing on the streets of a very hard place, and I watched as the line of children formed. The line of children was at least four city blocks long, and they were standing there. And I mean no disrespect at all by how I'm going to describe them, but you could tell simply by looking at them that they, they came from nothing. Most of them were, were not wearing shoes. If they had clothes on, they were wearing scantily covered uh, pieces of clothing, and their bodies were covered with sores, and they were filthy, and they smelled. They smelled like feces and urine, and they were standing in line, and all of a sudden, a pickup truck backed up a rusty pickup truck, and the truck bed was filled with rice. And somebody hopped into the back of the pickup and scooped up the rice in a little rusty cup, and the children, one by one, walked up to the back of the truck and just held out their hands. And I noticed that the children were not eating the rice. If you've been around someone who's severely hungry and malnourished, they, they will do anything to eat. even unspeakable things like sell their oldest child so that they can feed the rest of their children. When people are starving, they eat. They don't hold food. And I watched as these children did not eat. And I asked someone who was traveling with me in that particular country, I said, why aren't the children eating? He said, well, we've asked that same question. We've followed them back to their, the slums where they live. I don't like to call them slums. This is their home. This is their neighborhood. This is normal to them. But we, in our context, we would call them slums. We followed them back to the slums, and we've noticed that the children will share the rice with their younger siblings. And all of a sudden, the rain came. I was there during the rainy season. It was a torrential downpour, and I watched as the children tried to protect the single grains of rice from slipping through their fingers, and they were covering the rice. And somebody noticing that guys with comb-overs don't come from that part of the world, they ran up to me, held up an umbrella to do an honorable deed to try to keep me dry. And how many of you know that in that moment, the last thing you want to do when children are standing in line in the rain to get rice, the last thing you want to do is remain dry? And so I did what you did, uh, what you would have done. I politely thanked the individual for being kind, but I asked him to please put the umbrella down. And we stood there in the rain, and as I motioned for him to put the umbrella down, I noticed over my shoulder that there was this huge, ornately carved wooden door, and it really caught my attention. I like architecture, I like design, and it seemed to be something created from a distant ancient empire, but what really struck me was uh, the little girls standing in front of the wooden door, and they were covered in various hues of purples and pinks, and they even had bright lipstick on, on their faces. And in a moment, in the rain, in the middle of nowhere, I had a flashback to when our girls were younger. Allie and I, Allie is who I'm married to. She's my eighth grade sweetheart. 
and we have two girls, both attending college now. How many of you know college is not free? Right? Trying to pray in some men of God, trying to pray in some husbands. They're both in college. Well, I had a flashback in the, in the middle of this moment of Friday mornings, back in the day when the girls were young. Friday morning was my day, and so we always had the same routine. I made pancakes, and then we played party. Sometimes we played dance party and worship party and tea party. The most popular party we ever had was wedding party. And so we played wedding all of the time on Friday mornings. And so the girls put on their, their princess outfits and put on their pink chapstick. And, you know, they got all dressed up. And I had my black Bible, and I was the uh, person officiating the wedding. And so the girls walked down the aisle. Sometimes I would play the bridal march, you know, on the computer. And they're walking down the aisle. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today. In the presence of God and the sight of this company to join together this man, this woman, and the holy covenant of marriage. Marriage is an honorable estate instituted by God since the creation of time. And I would just go through it over and over and over again. As you can imagine, our girls have been married hundreds of times. <laughs> to imaginary people, by the way. <laughs> so don't judge. I have this flashback to play in wedding. And I said to the individual traveling with me, oh, look, even here. In the midst of horrific suffering, these beautiful little girls, they're playing dress up. He said, Heath, they're not playing dress up. He said, that door is the door to the brothel. He said, those girls, ages 8, 9, and 10, on average are sold for 200 U.S. dollars. Most, by the way, sold by parents to get money to feed the rest of the siblings. And I stood there angry, like you, nauseous, disgusted, frustrated. And I had this range of emotion. I was angry. I wanted to barge into the brothel, kick down the door, find the police, find some soldiers, somehow bring justice to what was going on. I wanted to figure out a way to somehow adopt all of the girls and take them home with me and show them there's, there's a better way. There, there's it's actually possible to be tucked in bed at night and have somebody love you and pray over you and treat you with respect. And I look over here at the line of children and the injustice, it was just unbearable. And I stood there in the rain and just talked to God. We walked around the corner eventually, we walked into a building, and what struck me when we walked into the building was the sound I heard because it was a sound that seemed archaic and very different from what I just experienced. I heard laughter. I heard laughter and singing. And I walked into this building. I came around the corner, and there were, there were little girls holding hands, spinning in circles, laughing, singing. They had pigtails, and their school uniforms were light and dark blue. And all of a sudden, someone rings a bell, and out of nowhere, hundreds of children come rushing from all over, and they sit down at tables. And they pause and give thanks. And then but one by one, the little children are given a plate of food with meat and vegetables and rice, a menu prepared by a team of nutritionists halfway around the world to make sure they have the proper blend of proteins, carbohydrates, micronutrients, fats, folic acids, irons, and other things. 
That building I walked into was one of about 2,400 Convoy of Hope feeding centers. We feed 387,000 children all over the world today. And those children, when we feed them, they sit down at a table, a table that hope prepares. And how do you prepare the table? You prepare the table because people keep God's ways, righteousness, and justice. They live lives of radical generosity. And in so doing, they restore hungry children to a place of honor. Well, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, some called him a Jewish sage, others would consider him to be a rabbi. We know him to be the son of God. Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, he comes on the scene and he is a, um, a fulfillment of God's conversation with Abraham to do righteousness and justice. We know that according to the gospel record, Jesus never travels more than 100 miles from his hometown. Some scholars tell us he communicated on a third grade level. Others say it is a sixth grade level, which is that I really don't know. What, what I know is that the Lamb of God communicated in a language that even children could understand. And I love that about God because it was the little boy who brought five loaves of barley bread, barley, the bread of the poor. It was the little boy who brought his bread and his fish to the mighty one who gave thanks, broke it, and the multitude was fed. Somebody once said that Jesus didn't come just to teach us what to believe. He also teaches us how to believe. And when you look at the Gospels, there are 125 unique Teaching incidents of Jesus, 13, start with content, and everything else starts with a question. The primary way that Jesus transitioned the world from the old covenant to the new covenant is he told fictitious stories called parables that didn't necessarily reveal a new truth. Instead, they drew attention to a truth that was there all along. It was just overlooked or ignored. He tells stories, and he primarily asks questions. Questions, it's not necessarily what you would expect to come out of the mouth of somebody who claims to be the truth with a capital T. Jesus didn't come to convert people. He came to take us, those who are spiritually dead, and give us abundant life. And if you think about it, though, as a follower of Jesus, our job is not to memorize him. Our job is to become like him. And when we become like him, we live lives of righteousness and justice. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you see this all over the pages. For example, the Bible tells the story in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus comes in contact with a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. When you come across a woman who has been beaten down by culture and has suffered year after year after year, in my experience, she will never look you in the eyes because she is covered with shame. She feels unworthy even to be noticed. And Jesus heals her, but he does not just heal her. Mark 5 tells us he looks at her, and in your English Bible, it may be translated daughter, but in the Aramaic, it literally means queen or person of royalty. 
Jesus doesn't just heal her. He restores her dignity by calling her princess. Righteousness and justice, radical generosity, he heals her, but he restores her to a place of honor. In Mark chapter 1, he comes across someone who is marginalized, a leper. To be a leper in the first century, even worse than it is today, to be a leper, you don't have time to say goodbye to your family. You're quarantined. You live a life of isolation. And Jesus not only heals the leper, but he touches the leper. Somebody put it this way. In the Old Testament, when you touch a leper, you are made unclean. But in the New Testament, when you touch a leper, they are healed. Jesus' righteousness and justice restores the leper to a place of honor. In John chapter 8, a woman caught in adultery. They drag the woman in front of the townspeople and the religious leaders. Have you ever read that story and asked, where's the man? The woman, after all, was caught in adultery, but they didn't drag the man. At a time where women were not even allowed to receive an education, the story is not just about immorality. It is also about inequality. They are discriminating against the woman, and they let the man go. And they want to kill her. They want to execute justice in their way. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gets down into the dirt. He writes something we don't know about. But he gets down into the dirt. He inserts himself into that space where this woman experiences significant inequality. Go and sin no more, he says. Amazing. When a few million Hebrew refugees leave ancient Egypt, what does God do? God provides food and water. God is the God of righteousness. God is the God of justice. He is radically generous with us, and in so doing, he restores us to a place of honor. Jesus performed 37 miracles that we have record of in the New Testament. Only three occur within the vicinity of the temple. Everything else is out there. And the gospel is most accurately demonstrated, and the church of Jesus Christ most accurately depicted when those who are hopeless in poverty, suffering, and hunger are simply loved, and somebody prepares a table for them. Jesus had something to say about the table. In Luke chapter 22, verse 27, this is what he says. He asks a question. Who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. When you sat at a table in the first century, you didn't sit the way we sit. You reclined. And if you reclined, it was a way of showing that you were at peace because you were wealthy and powerful. You reclined and you typically ate with one hand. Servants stood along the wall and served everybody. People would gather around the outside of homes and listen in on the dinner party. People would watch the most powerful, most important ones sit at the table. To approach the table was highly offensive if you did not belong there. It's one of the reasons why the woman who washed the Lord's feet with her hair and with her tears during a dinner party, it was highly offensive. 
Jesus asked the question, who is the most important one? He who sits at the table or the one who serves? You are right, the one who sits at the table. But I, the Lord says, am one among you as he who serves. I picture it this way. Jesus does not show up in the desolate places around the world and say to an angel or to a servant, hey, grab one of those extra chairs, bring it over here. I would like a hungry child to sit next to me. Hey, will you do me a favor? Grab that chair in the back and bring it over here. I would like the young lady who is suffering under the weight of inequality and injustice to dine with me. That's not what he does. Jesus gets up from his seat at the table. And he doesn't summon another servant to bring an extra one. He gets up from the table and he invites the hungry child to take his place. He invites the woman who's hurting to take his place. To the person who's lost everything from the hurricane or the earthquake, here, you can have my seat. To the refugee who spends 17 years on average in a refugee camp without a home, here, you can have my spot. We feed refugees all over the world. We don't talk a lot about it, but we feed them on the southern shores of Europe in places like Greece and Bosnia and Spain and places like Uganda, all throughout the Middle East. We feed people who for 17 years on average have nowhere to go. And what does Jesus do? He gives up his seat. Righteousness and justice. Radical generosity that restores people to a place of honor. Amazing. As followers of Jesus, it's our privilege. It's our privilege to be generous and kind. And in an age where the love of most, according to the Gospel of Matthew, when the love of most grows cold, love seems to be a new idea again. It is a sign and a wonder. When you simply love people, expecting nothing in return. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 and 28, and I close with this, says this. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow. I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. Let's pray. Spirit of God, thank you for speaking to our hearts Thank you that in your love and in your kindness, you draw us. I simply ask today that our hearts will be open and that we will have an ear to hear, O Spirit of God, what you're saying to us. I want to ask two questions today before pastor comes. The first question is this. Perhaps you're in, a, in the room today or you're listening and you, you don't know God. You don't know Jesus. I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you've been confirmed. You can spend eternity apart from God with baptismal waters dripping off your face. I'm not asking if you're a member of Westover Hills Church. I'm, I'm asking, do you know Jesus? Do you have a connection 
to God. Jesus is not just one of the many ways. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In a world that tells you there are many ways, Jesus says there's only way. There's only one way. In a world that is filled with lies and pretension, Jesus says that he is the truth. And in a world that tries to sell you a fictitious sort of life, Jesus says that he and he alone is the source of life. I'm asking, do you have a relationship with God the Father? Do you know God? Do you live for God? Are you surrendered to God? The only way to do that is to yield your life to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who through righteousness and justice died for your sin, was raised from the dead, and because of that, you can be restored to a place of honor. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much you pray, how much you give, how well you live. At the end of the day, our righteousness, according to Isaiah, is like filthy rags. We throw ourselves first at the mercy and grace of God, and then our lives follow. I'm asking, do you know him? And if that's you today, and you would say, God, I want to make my peace with you. God, I want to know you. I want a connection to you. Jesus, I'm asking you to be my Lord and Savior. If that's you, you want to surrender your life to Jesus today, I'm going to ask you to simply slip your hand up, and in a moment, we will all pray a prayer of confession together. Starting over here to my left, please slip your hand up if that's you. It's a good choice. Yes, ma'am. It's a good move. Way to go. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. That's a good choice. As I pan across, where are you? anyone else? As, as a sign of faith, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. As a sign of faith, yes, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Yes. Yes, it's a good choice. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Over here to my right, yes. I honor you for your honesty and your vulnerability. Yes. I'm going to invite everybody to stand to their feet. And for those of you who lifted your hands, today is not a finish line. Today is the starting line. And in a moment, pastor will come and pastor will give some instruction as to what, what you do next. But before we do that, I want to lead us all in a prayer. And whether you raised your hand or you didn't, I'm going to ask us all to pray. To pray out loud as a confession of our faith, as a confession of our trust in Jesus. And then I'm going to bless you before pastor comes. But let's all declare our faith together out loud. And if you raised your hand, God will hear the sincerity of your heart behind your words. And God will come and meet you. And you will begin the next chapter in your life with him. Let's pray. Jesus, today I surrender my life. I give it all to you. I give you my sin, my past, all of my shame and everything I've done. I receive your gift of grace. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. And from this moment on, no matter where I go, no matter what I do, Jesus, I am yours. And now, God, I pray over everybody in the room, deposit deep within our heart a seed of righteousness and justice.
Lord, as we go to the grocery store, as we invest our gift and sow around the world, as we speak a kind word, as we hug someone who's having a hard day, I pray let us be found guilty of living a life of unconditional love. Let us be found guilty of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Deposit deep within our heart a seed of righteousness and justice that we will, because of our kindness and radical generosity, restore people to a place of honor before you. As we prepare a table together for those who are in need, especially hungry children. To the glory of God, let it be so. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.